Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And we have an exciting film to discuss this week and a perfect seasonal selection for Halloween. Uh, For us, it's a return to the filmographies of both legendary B-movie director Roger Corman and the work of legendary actor Vincent Price, as well as the the work of Hazel Court, who is also in Devil Girl from Mars. Uh, This one is also an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation, uh, perhaps the finest one uh, of several that Corman helmed, uh, as well as one of the most well-regarded films he directed. We're going to be talking about The Mask of the Red Death from 1964. It's kind of amazing to see what Corman was capable of when he had just a a little bit more money and uh, like five weeks to direct a movie instead of two or three. Yeah, it's like, what what if we had a little more time? Uh, What if we had five (laughs) weeks instead of two? What if we had more money in the budget instead of less? And on top of that, what if we had British actors uh, to fill in the rest of the cast as opposed to uh, just, you know, various actors from California of of varying uh, talent levels? Exactly. So this one isn't just good in the, uh, you know, the sense you might normally say some Corman movies are good. They're kind of like scrappy and fun and you can see what they were able to pull off on on uh, bottom dollar. This one, I think, is is just straight up a good movie. 
Yeah, yeah, this this one's great. I I loved this film. Uh, this was the, my first viewing of it. I'd never seen it before, but I'd, I'd lined it up for us because I, I knew that it was very well regarded. I knew that it was going to be colorful. I knew that it was going to really showcase Vincent Price. And I was I was not disappointed in the least. Uh, this is definitely worth checking out. You don't have to be a like a, a Corman connoisseur to enjoy this film. And even if you do just want something to go to have in the background, uh, you know, you don't want something that requires close viewing. It's still great because it's so colorful. It's so beautiful, especially the, uh, the, the, the more recent releases of it that have been you know, fully restored and the movie just looks better than it's ever looked. The colors are amazing. The sets and costumes are amazing, like beautiful. I would also say this is a real standout role for Vincent Price because uh, I think this movie is often classified as as high camp, and it is camp, but it's also more than that. It There is a, a subtlety to it that I wasn't quite expecting when I went in. I thought it would be just you know delicious Vincent Price chewing of the scenery and all that. Uh, and so Price does play in a way a sometimes kind of hammy uh, Satanist aristocrat, but he but there's a little more to his performance than you would expect. Yeah, everything with really I have to give credit to to both Price and the script. Like the script seems really solid, and so there's so many scenes, so many uh, bits of dialogue where they're doing a thing that other films do. Uh, one example that I ended up uh, paying close attention to is uh, having some sort of a wisecrack after somebody is viciously murdered at the behest of the of the, the tyrannical prince. That's something mm-hmm. that happens in this film. And often when this sort of thing happens in a movie, be it a, like a Freddy Krueger movie or a typical horror movie or like a James Bond film, you know, it's really hammy. It's a, it's a cheese ball moment. It's groan-inducing. Uh, but when it happens in this film, it's it's not. It it feels like just carefully calibrated so that it's not too hammy. It's just uh, it's just sardonic enough and feels authentic within the the picture and doesn't throw you out of the movie viewing experience. I think of the moment where Hazel Court does the one of many ceremonies to get married to the devil. I don't know how many uh, devil <laughs> weddings she, she she marries Satan like four times in this movie, <laughs> but I guess in the final one where it's like really for real. Now she uh, now it went through. She is a hell bride. Uh, it, the ritual ends with like a falcon pecking her face off, and her dead body is found, uh, and all the guests are standing around in horror. But then Vincent Price. Uh, he, he very coolly just says, uh, oh, oh, there is nothing to worry about. She's just married a friend of mine. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's so perfect. The perfect delivery of the line doesn't come off as hammy. It just, it's, it's so good. Uh, there are also so many scenes where Vincent Price's character, Prince uh, Prospero, is giving some sort of a monologue about the nature of evil or darkness or pain. And... It, it's become a trope. So many horror films, especially, you'll have some evil character telling us all what pain's about or what horror is and and so forth. And in this film, the way it's handled just puts most examples I can think of to shame. Uh, it's just handled so perfectly. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. There is a tradition, I would say, going way, way back. In, in fact, even into the literature of the ancient world of the aristocratic figure who engages in perverse 
kind of morally undermining philosophical musings. I think this goes all the way back to like the Bible where Pilate asks, what is truth? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and you, you get scenes like this in you know, stories all, all throughout the years. This is a really good example of it though. Uh, it, it feels actually kind of thoughtful. Uh, Vincent Price's musings undermining, uh, you know, the, the good characters, philosophical assumptions are actually kind of clever and, and uh, more thoughtfully stated than usual. Absolutely. And it can it can actually it actually adds to the frightfulness of the film because as a viewer you're like, oh man, Pro- Prospero is making some some points here. Now I'm second guessing myself and my worldview. Uh, yeah. it's 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 so good. So we'll get into all this some more as we proceed talking about the cast and the the plot. Uh, as far as an elevator pitch goes, I w- the, the only thing that came to mind for me is what if a motion picture were a stained glass window in a cathedral of horror? Yeah, the colors in this movie are aggressive. There mm-hmm. is such use of color and a large, uh, like, blocks of color you know where like uh, you have characters who are uh who are dressed all in red or all in white and that is complemented by the fact that there are rooms that are entirely yellow or entirely purple and uh it, it, it's it's just fabulous yeah yeah you'll you'll question whether you've seen the color red before if you've seen the color <laughs> yellow before uh because it, the, the colors don't seem as bright in the real world as they do in this film which is something to say for a you know a gothic horror film. You tend to you expect the darkness and the grime and the shadows. And this film also brings some wonderful usage of those elements as well. But also mm-hmm. these rainbow colors that are uh, amazing. All right. On that note, let's go ahead and listen to I think just part of the trailer, the original audio, uh, the original trailer for this film, uh, because I don't think it's a good trailer. And I'll explain why in a second. So let's just let's just hear a little of it to get a taste. So yeah, I love this film, but this is not a good trailer. Uh, It spoils a lot of the film, and it's also just kind of an assortment of clips with minimal dialogue and no narration. Mm, That that doesn't work so good for the show. No, and I don't think, I just don't think it's a good trailer. Even viewing it, it's not a good trailer, in my opinion. However, the poster art for this film is amazing. Uh, If you haven't seen it, look it up. Uh, It's Price's face, you know, full sardonic Price as uh, Prince Prospero in red, full red face, composed. You look closer and you see that he's composed, his face is composed of all these red bodies intertwined with each other. It's poster art by Reynold Brown, who lived 1917 through 1991, who uh, he did magazine covers and, and all sorts of stuff, but he was responsible for a slew of great movie posters from the day, including Tarantula and Black Sabbath, also the really iconic poster for Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Beautiful poster, yeah. A quick note on where to find this film. Well, luckily, it's widely available in digital form. But we highly recommend the Shout Factory, Scream Factory, restored 4K Blu-ray. That's how we watched it. It features both a theatrical cut and an extended cut. And yeah, this is a beautiful looking film. Should be seen in the best quality possible, however you go about it. Agreed. You, you want the full buffet for your eyes. Yeah. 
All right. Well, let's get into the people involved. Uh, like we said, this one was uh, directed by Roger Corman. He was also one of the producers. Born 1926, as of this recording, still with us, Roger Corman is, of course, the Wizard of B-Movies, a prolific generator of late 50s drive-in flicks. On Weird House, we've specifically discussed 1957's Not of This Earth, as well as, I'm not sure how many Corman productions, uh, films that he produced, but someone else was directing. Uh, This film, though, like we've been saying, is a different egg from any of those other films. Shot in five weeks, not two. Shot for a higher budget and in England, which also allowed for some tax breaks, I understand, uh, plus access to a better supporting cast. Uh, So this is a fine, if not the finest, example of of Corman's uh, work as a director. Showing that he could not only crank out a film on time and on budget, but that he could actually be an artist as well. Yeah, and it is it is an artful movie. In fact, uh, apparently that was one of the criticisms after it came out. Like it didn't yeah. it didn't perform quite as well as the the, uh, the the main producers and the production company wanted. And they were like, "Well, it was probably too artsy. It was it was reaching a little too high for the audience." Which for weird cinema, that's a good thing. That's a good sign. <laughs> All right, now obviously this is based on not only one Edgar Allan Poe story, but but two. It's based on both The Mask of the Red Death and Hop Frog. Um, Edgar Allan Poe lived 1809 through 1849, American writer, poet, editor, and literary critic, best remembered, though, for his spooky poems and stories. Um, and uh, I, was, I was looking into like some of the adaptations. There have been a, just so many adaptations of Poe stories over the years. The earliest cinematic adaptation of his work was apparently 1908's Sherlock Holmes and the Great Murder Mystery, based on Poe's non-Sherlock Holmes novel, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Um, but the, the reason that That's there funny. are... That's <laughs> funny. Yeah. Uh, Though I, I do think... Uh, I do think it's the case that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was inspired to write the Sherlock Holmes stories by reading Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue. So I think Poe sort of gave rise to the detective genre in a way. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So there are countless adaptations again. They're still cranking out Poe adaptations. But this is in part due uh, to uh, one key reason, and a key reason that this film was greenlit and that the other Corman Poe films were greenlit. All of the works were in public domain by this point. Uh, So Mm, uh, I think the the other selling factor was like, they're teaching this in schools. Everybody knows Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, I think they saw money on both ends. Like, So you wouldn't have to pay for it because now it's in the public domain. And because it's part of school curricula, there's already a built-in audience for it. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you know the, the producers today who would rather make a new entry in an existing franchise than do a totally original film because existing franchise has a built-in audience. Except in this case, they don't have to pay for the rights to that franchise. It's, it's public. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's still, I think it is still taught in schools. I, uh, I I certainly have a strong memory of encountering Poe in the classroom. And I remember going to see a, a dramatization of the Telltale Heart as part of a school group and being really mm-hmm. impressed by that. Though it's funny, most of this of the actual narrative content of this film is not in the Poe story. I mean, th- yeah. this is essentially in original a totally original plot based on uh just kind of loosely based on a scenario described right. by poe so getting into the screenwriters uh, that were responsible for this uh the the the, uh, the main one really to highlight here is charles beaumont 
who lived 1929 through 1967. And he was a pretty big and pretty influential name in speculative fiction of the day. He penned numerous horror and sci-fi stories, as well as multiple classic episodes of the original Twilight Zone series. Titles such as The Howling Man, Static, Miniature, Printer's Devil, and Number 12 Looks Just Like You. And many of these were adapted from his own stories. He also did film screenplays, including 1958's Queen of Outer Space, 62's Night of the Eagle, uh, also 62's Premature Burial and The Intruder, which was based on his own novel, uh, 1963's The Haunted Place, and 1964's uh, Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. Uh, the other writer on this, uh, screenwriter, uh, is R. Wright Campbell, who lived 1927 through 2000, American screenwriter and author who worked on such films as 1957's Man of a Thousand Faces, 1958's Teenage Caveman, and 1960's The Night Fighters. As we said, the screenplay here is very good. Yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, tip of the hat to, to both these gentlemen. But more than anything else, this movie is about Vincent Price. That's right, Vincent Price playing the role of Prince... Uh, Prospero. He lived 1911 through 1993. American acting royalty, active on screen from the late 30s to the early 90s. Just, I mean, everything was great about him. Great voice, great look, great mustache. Horror icon, but was active in various genres throughout his career, uh, especially early on in his career. And then later, you know, he, especially by the time of these Poe films, he was really cemented as, uh, as the horror guy. And then towards the end of his career, he was kind of played more of the celebrity game, doing you know, celebrity appearances, uh, product endorsements, which we've, we've had some fun discussing already mm-hmm. uh, on, on the show. And, you know, by, by this point in his career, he'd very much earned that. Yeah, cameos, you know, you could uh, to do the narration in Thriller or to be in commercials for the No Jelly Bars. Yeah, the No Jelly Bars. Or, yeah, go on The Muppet Show. Host The Muppet Show. Go for it. So if you want to hear more about Vincent Price, uh, go back and listen to our episodes on Dr. Fibes and also Scream, Scream Again. Uh, this film, however, is a better showcase for Poe than either of those. He's great in those films, but in this, you just get pure villainous Price, just top shelf stuff. Totally agree. Now, another actor that's in this one that we've previously discussed in the show, Hazel Court, plays Juliana. Hazel Court lived 1926 through 2008. British actor and early horror queen, a star of Hammer Horror as well. Uh, Their films include The Curse of Frankenstein from 57, The Man Who Could Cheat Death from 59, Dr. Blood's Coffin from 61, and 63's The Raven. Uh, She was in uh, Devil Girl from Mars. Uh, Most uh, recently, that's what we talked about her. Uh, That's the film we covered where we uh, were discussing her. On Mm -hmm. TV, she appeared on both The Twilight Zone and Thriller. And yeah, in this, she is the consort of Prince uh, Prospero, who is almost 100% on board with the whole worship the Prince of Darkness thing. But even when she's all in, Prospero is more interested in the corruption of innocence. You kind of get the sense that, uh, w- well, maybe we should describe her role after we describe uh, uh, Jane Asher. That's right. Jane Asher plays Francesca. Uh, Asher was born 1946, as of this recording, and still still very much alive. British child actress who transitioned into quite a career as an adult. Some of her most notable films include Deep End from 1970, Alfie from 1966, and Death at a Funeral from 2007. As a child, she also she appeared in such titles as 1957's The Quartermass Experiment. She was also uh, pretty famous for being Paul McCartney's muse for a number of years, inspiring such songs as Here, There, and Everywhere. 
So in this movie, Jane Asher plays this this peasant girl, Francesca, who is brought to the palace of Prince Prospero because Prospero sees her moral goodness, her Christian piety, and her innocence. And he's like, I got to corrupt that. I got to <laughs> turn her over into Satan. Uh, and she has an interesting relationship with the character Juliana, played by Hazel Court, who you get the sense was once in Francesca's place. Like she herself maybe was once a morally good, uh, faithful, uh, faithful Christian who was, who was uh, innocent as well, but has for, for some time now been corrupted and turned to, to the dark side of the force. Now she is all in for Satan. And when, uh, when Prospero shows up with a new innocent person to corrupt and add into the coven, uh, Julian is kind of jealous. You, you can feel how you can like, she feels snubbed. And, uh, for some reason I, I felt kind of, uh, like I felt a strong sympathy for her in that, that Prospero has now, there's somebody more innocent to corrupt and he's just moved on. Yeah. As with everything in this film, there's so much more nuance than, than a lesser film would give this scenario. In so many other films, you can imagine, yeah, here's your villain. Here's the bad girl. Here's the good girl. Bad guy wants to do bad things to the good girl. Uh, fair enough. That's, I guess, a pretty simple uh, uh, recipe for a, a horror movie or what have you. But in this, yeah, it's a, it's a bit more complicated than that. Like she's, uh, Francesca is not quite a mere damsel in distress. Like, as, as she's being corrupted, it's like she has agency in her corruption. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you get the sense with both these characters. It's not like, well, yeah, he, he overpowered me with his suave evil. It's like, no, there's a sense that they have listened to the argument for darkness and have been overcome by how pervasive that argument is. Yeah. But if you want a simplistic hero in your film, well, this film's got one <laughs> as well. And that is the character... Uh, Gein, Gino, 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 yeah, Gino, Gino, played by Dave, David Weston, born 1938. Um, we were talking before we recorded about how a dumber version of the same story would have made Gino the main character because he mm -hmm. is ostensibly like the, the young male hero, you know, he, yeah. he gets to sword fight, he gets to be dashing and courageous, but he's not the main character of this movie. In fact, None of the good characters are the main character. It's such an interesting way to arrange the drama that really the main character of the film is the villain. And there are heroes, there are good characters to root for, but they're all secondary characters. Yeah, and it's this is something that I think would definitely work for so many modern viewers because it's what we've actually come to expect with shows like Game of Thrones, and so many other properties where the characters in the forefront are the flawed characters and the complicated characters and sometimes the outright villains of the piece. And like on, on Game of Thrones, for example, a character like uh, like Gino here, Gino here would be would be in the background, would not be yeah. the major character, and and that's the case here. Yeah, he's overshadowed by various other uh, characters, and the film is largely more concerned with weirder and more complex figures as opposed to this typical babyface. He's still important to the plot, uh, but he is not the main focus. 
Yeah, and he's likable as a character. I mean, even though he's not as uh, complex as some of these other ones, but he he's got a kind of uh, righteous defiance in the face of Prospero's tyranny that's it's hard not to get behind. Like uh, yeah. when when you very first meet him, Prospero's in his village, uh, you know, just sort of looking down on everybody and condescendingly saying, "Oh, thank you for all the grain." And Gino gets right up in his face. He's like, "Yeah, you're going to eat all our grain while we starve." David Weston was a Shakespeare uh, was is uh, as of this recording he's still still alive I don't think he's active anymore but uh, he was a Shakespearean actor accomplished actor of stage TV and screen he apparently acted in 29 of 37 Shakespeare plays he appeared in the 1964 film Beckett as well as multiple episodes of Doctor Who uh, during the William Hartnell era as the human Nicholas Muss and during the excellent Tom Baker era is a thrail by the name of Birok, which uh, appears to be a kind of lion man. I haven't seen these episodes in particular. Uh, mm. He was also in the Don Sharp film from 1964, Witchcraft, opposite Lon Chaney Jr. Now, most of the scenes that Gino is in, he's par- sort of part of a duo. He, they're like the two men that Francesca uh, care- cares about. And they are Gino, but also her father, Ludovico, played by Nigel Green. Yeah, Nigel Green is Ludo here. Uh, Green lived 1924 through 1972. British actor who appeared in a bunch of films, including 64's Zulu, 1965's The Ipcris File, and 1963's Jason and the Argonauts, in which he played Hercules. (laughs) Mm, Okay. Uh, Other films include 1971's Countess Dracula, 65's The Skull, and his final film was a 1973 uh, adaptation of uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, in which he plays the Green Knight uh, opposite, uh, looks like a really good cast of the likes of Robert Hardy, Ronald Lacey, and Richard Herndl. Ronald Lacey, he's the he's the Nazi in, uh, in Indiana uh, yes, Jones? Yes, in Raiders, yes, he's the yeah. uh, the man in black with the uh, the Peter Laurie-esque character in Raiders. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tote, yeah, the, yeah. the officer who, who melts gloriously at the end. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. 
It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, we've said that, uh, of course, Price's Prospero in this movie is thoroughly evil, but he's also kind of complex and kind of interesting and uh, comes off as a more thoughtful uh, brand of evil. On the other hand, there are just like straight up, uh, you know, mustache twirling evil, evil creeps in this movie. And a great example of that is Alfredo. Yes, played by um, the accomplished British stage actor Patrick McGee, who lived 1922 through 1982. Uh, this, guy, this guy has a very recognizable face and build. Uh, Alfredo is a, is a blunt object of a, of a villain, <laughs> and he has the, 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 McGee had the physicality to back that up. Um, 
he uh, he did a lot of horror films, but he also pops up in a, a number of, of other works. Uh, he was in two Stanley Kubrick films, A Clockwork Orange in 71 and Barry Lyndon in 75. He was in William Fredkin's uh, The Birthday Party from 68, 1970's Cromwell. He was in 1981's Chariots of Fire. But he also, yeah, was in a ton of horror movies, including uh, Lucio Fulci's 1981 film The Black Cat, 1972's Demons of the Mind, the 1972 amicus film Tales from the Crypt, 65's Die, Monster, Die, and Francis Ford Coppola's Dementia 13 from 1963. I'm trying to figure out if I've seen Fulci's Black Cat. I don't think I have. I don't think I've seen that one, no. But now you have a reason to, because Alfredo's in it. (laughs) Alfredo is so slimy. You just, you hate him from the moment you see him, and then everything he does makes it even worse. Yeah, and he he has a number of of interactions with Vincent Price, but he's also very much the villain of our B-plot. We have a B-revenge plot, and it involves both Alfredo and a character by the name of Hop Toad. Hop Toad is great. Yeah, Hop Toad is, is really good. Uh, and, and the thing is, this whole B-plot with Hop Toad, which is based on the Edgar Allan Poe 1849 story, Hop Frog, this would, I think, be otherwise maybe a, a forgettable distraction in the film. You might find yourself mm-hmm. saying, well, this is okay, but when are we going to get back to the main plot? Except the character playing Hop Toad is so good. Uh, yeah. Played by Skip Martin, who lived 1928 through 1984. This is a short-statured British actor, born Derek George Horowitz, and not to be confused with, I think there's some other actors and musicians who use the moniker Skip Martin. Uh, but uh, yeah, he plays this character that, like so much in the film, yeah, it, you can imagine a version in which this is just a straight-up... Um, uh, you know, like uh, like evil dwarf sort of a character or something, but with with the Skip Martin's Hop Toad, you know he's charismatic, he's believable as a as a as a human character, while at the same time being whimsical and of course having a just vicious revenge plot in motion. So he's uh, he's he ultimately is one of the highlights of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Skip Martin is wonderful in this. It's so hard not to love him, even when he's even when his revenge. Uh, on a nasty character for a nasty act turns extremely brutal. Uh, I don't know. It just doesn't really bother you. It's just like, good job. Good job, Hop Toad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's Prince Prospero's response as well. It's like, that's, that's good. G- give him a tip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. G- give him a reward for burning one of my guests alive. <laughs> uh, Skip Martin wasn't in a ton of films, but he was active through 75. And during the 60s and 70s, he was in a number of, of mostly horror films, the likes of the Hellfire Club, Psycho Circus, Vampire Circus, Son of Dracula and Horror Hospital. Uh, but yeah, during that time, he got to work in pictures with n- names like Price, Cushing Lee, uh, Patrick McNeed, Diana Rigg, uh, some, some great names. And some, in many of these, like it's not just he was in the same picture with them, and he had screen time with them. He was uh, interacting with, with some uh, great actors of the day. Yeah, Skip Martin's wonderful. Now, this is Mask of the Red Death, and there is a character that is the Red Death or the, what, the, the man in red. Um, I think he's referred to in different, uh, different ways. But uh, this is an uncredited performance by uh, an actor by the name of John Westbrook, who lived 1922 through 1989. He also worked in Corman's Poe follow-up to this film, The Tomb of Legia, 
Uh, he was the voice of Treebeard in the 1978 animated adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. And he also apparently did a lot of work in, with radio plays and audio books, which should come as no surprise because he has this really rich, velvety voice. When he first spoke, I was like, it's Christopher Lee. And yeah, I really it, thought it was him until I looked it up. And it's not Christopher Lee, but he sounds enough like him. Yeah, it's very Christopher Lee-esque. It has that that uh, like that rich quality to it. It's, it's a voice that can go head-to-head with Vincent Price in these scenes. Yes. And I like the way the character is written as well. He... Uh, he he is very economical with his words. He speaks often in very pointed, clipped sentences that are uh, extremely ominous and, and effective. Yeah. Now, we mentioned how beautiful this film is. Uh, it's just wonderful to watch. And a lot of that also has to do with the cinematography, which is the work of Nicholas Rogue, who lived 1928 through 2018. This is a name that, uh, that should uh, uh, ring a bell with a number of you. It totally made sense how good this movie looked when I realized he was the cinematographer. Yeah. Yeah. He served as a cinematographer on a number of films, and not only this, but also 1966's uh, Fahrenheit 451. But he's probably best known as the director of such films as the 1971 Outback thriller Walkabout, 1973's Don't Look Now. I know that's one you've uh, mentioned uh, before, Joe. Oh, yeah. That, that's a horrifying film. It's extremely good. Uh, and then on the like the trippier end of the spectrum, he directed 1976's The Man Who Fell to Earth, starring David Bowie. Other films of note include 1990's The Witches. And uh, I was surprised, I didn't know anything about this, but uh, yeah, his later career has, has moves around through different genres. I mean, there's, for instance, there's some, um, there's some erotica in there, but then there's also a 1996 miniseries of Samson and Delilah with a really solid cast. Hmm. The production designer on this is also uh, someone of note, Daniel Holler, born 1929. We've talked about him before because he directed 1970s The Dunwich Horror. Oh, with Dean Stockwell, Sandra Dee, and Ed Begley. Yeah, yeah. Very fun film. Go back and listen to the, the past Weird House episode on that if you're interested. Uh, that was a Lovecraft adaptation, but Holler also directed a 1965 Lovecraft adaptation, Die, Monster, Die, starring Boris Karloff. He did some biker films. Uh, he did some TV work. Uh, but yeah, he was the production designer on this film. And then finally, the music for this film is the work of David Lee, born 1926. Um, this is one of those scores that is not necessarily the kind of thing I would seek out to listen in, to in isolation. But for this film, it's really solid. I think it's really effective. It uh, evokes a nice gothic cinema sensibility for the time period. Oh, yeah, especially in the final scenes, uh, like mm -hmm. in the confrontation between Prince Prospero and the Red Death as the dancers are circling, uh, the music gets intense, and it's very good. Yeah. Uh, David Lee was slash is a prominent pianist and arranger who also composed for film, TV, and, and a lot of television ads, apparently, and I think he's also a novelist. Uh, this was probably his biggest film that he composed for, but he did a, a, at least a handful of film scores, uh, including 1963's The Very Edge, which has been sort of on my radar before because it's one of the very few genre films to star, to star Jeremy Brett, who um, is, is famous for his portrayal of his Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but when you look around for like weird, you know, psychotronic films that Jeremy Brett was in, there aren't very many uh, uh, contenders. Uh, the Very Edge is one of the very few. Probably not a film we'd, we'd necessarily tackle on Weird House, but it's, uh, it stood out to me before. 
Well, are you ready to discuss the plot of this American international picture? Let's do it. Once again, uh, a, a Corman movie for AIP coming in hot with an awesome credit sequence design. Even some of his, you know, uh, drive-in B movies had great-looking credits, uh, and these are also great in a way that I can understand uh, by by uh, uh, some of the producers may have been seen as too artsy fartsy, but I think it's wonderful. So we see like the mask of the Red Death title, but in the background there is a growing splatter of red, as if blood, but the red splatter actually doesn't look exactly like blood because it doesn't look like the splashing of round droplets. And instead it looks more like uh, some kind of fibrous growth, like hairs or filaments or branches of blood. Mm. And it gradually spreads and spreads across more of the screen until the red holds illimitable dominion overall. Very fitting. Now we open on one of my favorite things, a spooky indoor for outdoor set. I'm about 90% sure that's what it is. I'd say more than 90. This is almost definitely an indoor set, uh, but it looks amazing. Fog drifting through the darkness, uh, dead tree limbs, uh, an, an atmosphere that's just like so heavy you can feel it. And then you see a peasant woman wrapped in rags climbing a hill covered in soft earth. Uh, and it, it, what ran through my head looking at this is the the Thomas Hobbes description of life without civilization, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Just a desolate view of life. Uh, and then we see the peasant woman walk up to the top of the hill, and she walks around collecting deadfall. She's gathering twigs, I guess, to burn, until she finally wanders past a, a dead tree and a figure cloaked in red. And the man in red is sitting cradled in the roots of the dead tree, and he calls out to her. He says, Grandmother, come closer. And she does, and he produces a white rose, and then he waves his hand over it, and the white rose turns to red, then he hands her the flower and says, take this to your village and tell the people the day of their deliverance is at hand. She bows to the man in red, takes the rose and totters off on her way. This cannot be good. Uh, but we immediately, <laughs> oh, sorry. No, no, no. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a great scene. It's very, uh, it's, it's played seriously. And uh, yeah, this does not bode well for the village. We know what he's getting at. He's like, here's some, Here's a, here's a brand new disease for you, Grandma. Go share this with the rest. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's it's going to go viral. Um, <laughs> you know, the what's also not good for the village is a visit from the prince. Uh, he's going to ride in to speak to people. And the, the prince, uh, he's a reckless driver, for one thing. I mean, I guess he's not driving. But he. it seems like he has instructed the carriage driver, uh, do not mind if there are children playing in the street. <laughs> Yeah, we get the great scene where there's a there's a child there in the path of the carriage, and uh, our hero Gino has to to run into the street and scoop up the child to keep the child from being just run over by uh, the Prospero Express here. And then we get a price reveal. One of the soldiers pulls back the curtain from the carriage, and there's Price inside, wearing a funny hat and uh, glittering gold raiment uh just a beautiful outfit standing amidst all these poor peasants and he comes out and he he thunders to them according to my custom i have come here personally to thank you for the year's harvest and to invite you to a feast to be held in a fortnight when annually i gather about me the nobles of the countryside 
So he's being generous, it seems. He's he's offering that they can come up to a feast at his castle. Yeah, and, and you know, they get to look at these fabulous costumes. This is the first of so many costumes that Vincent Price wears in this film. But Gino is not going to stand for this farce. He, he uh, you know, he says, oh, come to your castle. He gets up in Price's face and he says, when you'll throw us the scraps from your table as if we were dogs. And Price says, exactly. But these dogs have a loud bark and show their teeth. Why? And I love this moment, especially because it reminds me of my favorite part of Superman 2, where Lex Luthor says something vaguely disrespectful to Terrence Stamp as General Zod, and then Zod replies, Why do you say this to me when you know I will kill you for it? <laughs> but the young man explains uh, why why he's got more more bark than usual. He says, Well, an old woman from our village met a holy man up on the hill, and he made a prophecy. He said the day of our deliverance was at hand. So the the stranger in red, his message has now spread to the village. Yeah, they, they don't have much to lose. They're emboldened by prophecy now. And so at least a couple of them are standing up. Right. And they interpret the prophecy of deliverance as deliverance from Prospero's tyranny. Yeah. Uh, but Prospero, Prospero is kind of amused, you know, he's, he's giving them the Terrence stamp and then he just instructs his soldier soldiers to garrot them. Yeah. Yeah. Turns his back on them. It's a what, cold moment. He's a cold villain in this scene. Yeah. But they're saved at the last moment. A beautiful young woman from the village intervenes. She runs to Prince Prospero to beg him for mercy. She says, mercy in the name of God. And here we get a kind of surprising turn. Prospero so far is just a brutal narcissistic tyrant. Uh, so you would think he would just say, oh, you know, garrot her too. But mm-hmm. when one of his soldiers throws the young woman to the ground, and Prospero slaps the soldier and rebukes him. He says, she was addressing me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he seems interested by her plea for mercy. She introduces herself as Francesca. This is Jane Asher. And Francesca is uh, disheveled and dirty to show she's a poor peasant, but she also has a huge cross on her neck to show that she is pious. Yeah, big silver cross, cleanest thing in the whole village. It, it is, yes. Uh, and she, she begs forgiveness for these two men, uh, but is Prospero going to listen? Prospero, he says, you know, he does not forgive. He gives a speech about how if my hound bites my hand, I cannot, you know, let it go undisciplined. However, at the same time... Having seen the film already in this scene, now it makes sense. You can see the gears turning in his head. Mm-hmm. He seems so taken with her innocence and her, her selfless pleas for, for help for these two men. Uh, you can see him thinking, wow, this humble Christian would be perfect for my satanic coven. So he almost immediately starts playing the mind games here with her. Yes. So he tries to negotiate. He's like, okay, one of these guys you want to save, one must die, but the other can live and you have to choose. Uh, But she explains she can't choose because one of them is her father, Ludovico, and the other, Gino, is the man she loves. Uh, This is also the moment where, incidentally, we get the first line from Alfredo, the creep. He's this sniveling aristocrat who leans in, uh, and he's all excited about the entertainment. He goes, can such eyes have ever known sin? And then uh, Price says, they will, Alfredo, they will. So Francesca has to choose, but she can't. And just when you think they're going to force her to choose, they're interrupted because a scream draws them to a nearby hut in the village. Prospero goes to investigate the scream. And oh boy, guess what time it is? 
it's red death time. He sees yeah. it's a lady who's like, you know, laying there trembling. She turns her head over and screams and her face is splattered with, with red blood and pock marks. And this is the way the red death is depicted in the movie. Price knows what he's looking at. He's like, that's the red death. We've got to get out of here immediately. Yeah. He's like, all right, pack these three individuals of interest up uh, and just uh, burn the, burn the town to the ground, burn everything else. Oh yeah. It's almost as an afterthought when they're leaving. Well, so yeah, like you said, he, he says, uh, okay, take these three to the castle. These two guys, we're going to send them to the dungeon. Francesca is going to come with me because again, I think he's thinking Francesca is a total goody two shoes. We've got to get her some heavy metal records <laughs> uh, and, and win her over for, for the Lord of darkness. So they're, they're leaving. And then Prospero is like, mm, yes, by the way, kill them all. <laughs> Such a villain. So cold. So they head off to the castle. The poor village is consumed by flames. And here we go to the secluded Palace of Prospero, where we will spend pretty much the entire rest of the movie. Uh, Prospero sends out notice to his other wicked aristocratic friends that they must come to the castle and shelter with him and attend a large festival, a masquerade ball. They're going to party through the plague. Yeah, and he he warns them, don't go visit that town that I just had to burn to the ground, though. If you do that, uh, you can't come inside. Yep, yep, yep. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love— you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. 
Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, Now, Prospero here introduces Francesca to his consort, Juliana. Again, this is Hazel Court from Devil Girl from Mars. And together they are going to turn Francesca to the dark side of the force. Uh, Price, like there's a scene where Price says, hey, you're wearing a cross around your neck. Are you a true Christian believer? And Francesca says, yes, she is. And he says, well, you can't wear that. Nobody's allowed to wear a cross in this castle. You must never wear it again. And here in this scene, we start to get the conflict between Juliana and Francesca. Uh, as we talked about earlier, Juliana is jealous. Uh, I get, you know, she already got corrupted and turned to evil. And now Prospero has a new friend to satanify and he's, she's feeling left out. Now this is where we get that scene with the bathtub, right? They take her to the, um, yeah. this, the, the most gloriously <laughs> over-decorated bathtub you've ever seen with what are these golden swans or are they angels i don't know well they're probably not angels if they're in prospero's palace they might well, be devils i don't think they're probably birds angels, right? or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> some sort of winged creatures it's just a splendid a, a royal regal uh bathtub and uh, yeah they're like all right you got to get in there and, and get yourself cleaned up yeah. Uh, oh, and we're also we're instru- uh, Juliana is instructed to, you know, uh, dress Francesca, basically like make her appropriate for the palace, give her a fancy dress and everything. Meanwhile, we get to see all of the wicked party goers hanging out at the at the castle here doing odd stuff. Uh, I didn't quite understand this, but is Alfredo playing a game where he sticks a knife in people's mouths? Yeah, I guess so. It, it does. It is an. <laughs> a good introduction to just how brutal and direct he is. Uh, Prince Prospero is all about these strange, dark, philosophic mind games. 
whereas uh, Alfredo just wants to stick knives in people's mouths, that sort of thing. And uh, Vincent Price wanders through the room and, and kind of disses Alfredo. And then he, he gives a monologue about what is terror. And everybody's following him around as he's showing off the awesome sets. There's like a big uh, gear-driven clock with a uh, pendulum shaped like an axe. I think that me- might be a nod to the pit in the pendulum. Mm-hmm. And people follow him around, uh, and he, he's like, what is terror? But eventually this ends in the scene where we first meet uh, Hop Toad and Esmeralda. A.K.A. Tiny Dancer. <laughs> they do. They refer to her as Tiny Dancer multiple times. Oh, they do? Literally? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, th- these are two uh, little people who are dancers in the in the court uh and uh and as they're dancing esmeralda accidentally knocks over alfredo's wine goblet first of all alfredo why was your goblet on the floor what was it doing yeah. there yeah yeah that's you're just asking for it you can't be mad at a at a child or a tiny dancer for knocking over your wine if you're keeping it on the floor next to your boot alfredo is a, of course a violent jerk so he slaps her and instantly we we get the look of death from hop toad at alfredo there's going to have to be some revenge here. All of the nobles are wicked, but Alfredo just sucks. Yeah. There's no imaginable viewer of this film who's like, I think they were too hard on Alfredo. <laughs> <laughs> so Prospero announces that on the upcoming Sabbath at midnight, there will be a masquerade. And he says, uh, all the wardrobes of the castle are yours to use. Uh, so all the guests dress up how you like. But I beg you, even for the humor of it, do not wear red. So we'll have to remember that. No one is allowed to wear red at the masquerade. Mm. Oh, and all, I forgot about this. Uh, Price just randomly throws his wine glass in Alfredo's face at the end of the scene. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what prompts that, but it's really funny. And Alfredo is clearly mad, but he can't do anything about it. Right. He makes as much of a threat as he can muster, but it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So Price, uh, again, lectures his guests on how they're all very lucky to be there at his house because otherwise they'd be outside the castle walls dying of the Red Death. And then they present Lady Francesca. They have dressed up this peasant girl to look like she is a noble herself. And I think they're, they're uh, you know, trying to initiate her to the evil debauchery of the, the, the satanic aristocratic lifestyle. And then Vincent Price walks around mocking all of his guests and humiliating them. He, like, he walks up to a guy and he's like, how like a pig you are. Be one and it makes him crawl around on the floor pretending to be a pig and oinking. And then he does this to a bunch of people. He's just humiliating all of them by forcing them to be animals. But they also, for the most part, you do see some looks of embarrassment from here and there, like one of the characters' wives and all. But there's also a sense that they're like, yeah, I am now liberated to just be a pig. Like, that's that's who I am. Do what thou wilt. Uh, I will thank you. Yes, I I like being a worm. Yes, thank you, sir. I am a worm. <laughs> yeah, he does several of these, and he's like, and for the rest of you, yeah, use your imagination. Be, be some <laughs> animals, and everybody just goes with it. He says, show me the lives and loves of the animals. <laughs> now, one of the next sequences that we have to talk about is our introduction to the sequence of monocolored rooms, like the yellow room, and then the purple room, and then the white room, and the black room. Yes, this these rainbow rooms that are all attached to each other. Uh, it's th- these are some of the, the visually most impressive sequences in the film. These are used multiple times, but this is our first introduction to it, uh, where 
Prospero is, is bringing uh, her th- through and describe. He first describes the yellow room as one that was u- that his father, I believe, had used to drive somebody insane. Like put him in here for an extended period of time, and when they were finally let free, they could not even you know glimpse the sun. Like the the yeah. yellow of this room made the sun horrifying. It drove them insane. Yeah, and he, he so he's describing these twisted experiments done on people, and he explains it by saying somewhere in the human mind is the key to our existence. My ancestors tried to find it to open the door that separates us from our creator. So price is an interesting kind of Satanist here. He's not just seeking power and pleasure. Like a lot of movie Satanists, he is seeking a kind of understanding. He wants like a metaphysical discovery about the, the, the truth of existence. Yeah, it's a much the, the Satanism in this film. It's easy to to build up your expect or build a certain expectation for Satanists in your your genre movies. You know, you expect uh, bloodthirsty murder rituals. You expect a little bit of monster worship in there, and there's maybe a little bit of of both of those in this. But for the most part, yeah, it is this more philosophic approach. Like Prospero is not really looking to worship any monster gods. Uh, he's not caught up in all of that. This is not like the devil rides out. Uh, but he seems to see this as an avenue toward darkness that makes the most sense in a world consumed by darkness. And that's a lot of what this whole sequence is about, him describing this quest, this philosophy. And it's really well executed. Yeah, he argues essentially the classic, the problem of evil. You know, he he's trying to disprove her faith, and he says, "How can you believe a a god of goodness rules over this world, given all of the death and de- decay and the disease, the Red Death itself?" Uh, and he finally says, "If a god of love and life ever did exist, he is long since dead. Someone, something rules in his place." And this is this is some. I, this feels like some hard stuff for the early 1960s, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Francesca wants to go into the final room in the sequence, the black door, and he suddenly stops her. He says, "That room is not open to you." And she asks, "Is there something to fear in that room?" And he says, "For the uninvited, there is much to fear." And Prospero himself looks afraid of what's mm-hmm. behind the the last door in the black room. Now, after all this, we go on to a scene between Vincent Price and Hazel Court. Uh, Juliana, of course, is still jealous of the peasant girl. She's trying to, I think, regain her spot as like the 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 apple of Vincent Price's eye, and uh, she she says, you know, I've been an eager student of Satanism, but I've I've held back from the final ceremony. I'm ready now for the invocation. I am ready to become the bride of Satan. And he's he's a little. Uh sly about this and, and this yeah. is like oh of course you are now because you want to protect your your status yeah then she's like no no i really i am i'm really i'm ready i thought about it i'm ready to marry satan yeah so later that night francesca wakes up and she wanders from her bedroom and uh, wanders about the this the, the spooky empty halls at night until she stumbles in she she goes into the final room the black room and witnesses an evil rite taking place uh and uh like vincent price is in a coffin with his eyes closed like a vampire and hazel court is bathed in red light wearing a, a crown and sitting in a throne next to a raven and so the first time i saw this i assumed okay so this is the ceremony right this is the one where she becomes the bride of satan 
Uh, but no, something else is going to happen with Hazel Court after this. So, so she's not quite there yet. Uh, Francesca just gets freaked out seeing all this. I think when Vincent Price opens his eyes from the coffin, she screams and runs away. Yeah, I was left unsure if this was a dream or if this was something that was really taking place and she, mm. she witnessed it. Um, ultimately, it doesn't, I think it's doesn't real. matter. Yeah? Yeah. This is one of the ceremonies, perhaps. Or this is satanic nap time. This is just what... <laughs> what a little little night nap looks like. I don't know. Now, there's another scene uh, following this th- that's interesting where Price is doing falconry. Like he has a, a you know the leather glove and the falcon, and he sends it up to to catch a bird. And he explains to Francesca that your god has blinded you, like a trainer blinds a falcon in order to submit its will to his. And then he goes on to say, my master and his followers look about the world with open eyes. And Francesca says, your master. And if it wasn't already obvious, he hasn't (laughs) directly told this to Francesca yet. But finally, he admits it. He goes, my master is Satan, the Lord of Flies, the fallen angel, the devil. His hat in this scene, by the way, is Mm. uh, good. Yes, my, my my only regret is that I did not count the costume changes that uh, Prince Prospero goes through in this film. Each each costume is is more magnificent than the last. Now, there's a scene where a noble arrives at the palace at the gates outside, begging to come inside. But uh, I don't think I caught at first the reason why Price wouldn't let them in. But I I think the second time I watched it, I realized it's because. He and his entourage had been to the village where the Red Death was. Is that right? That was my understanding, yeah. They're like, hey, yeah. we're here for the party. We just came from that city with the plague. And Prospero's like, mm-mm. No, you can't come in. Uh, this guy's name is Scarlatti. He's got a big yellow feather on his hat. And he's like, oh, please, please let us in. I'll, I'll do anything. And uh, Price welcomes them with a crossbow bolt. Yep, shoots him dead. Also, let's check back in with our uh, with the men that Francesca was so desperate to save, with Gino and Ludovico. They are down in the dungeon. They're being trained in sword fighting under the premise that they are going to have to fight to the death in front of prince, uh, the prince's guests for entertainment. And uh, they obviously don't want to do this, but the main guard forces them to by sort of like prodding at, at Gino with the sword until he fights back. There are some moments of very floppy fake swords in this scene. And yet at the same time, like the, the scene where the, this brutish guard who I, I didn't get the gentleman who, who played this role, but it's a, he's effective as a, is this brutish guard who, uh, who's just like, uh, like Gino's like, well, you're not going to kill me. You want me to fight my, uh, fight my girlfriend's father to the death. And he's like, yeah, but I'll cut you a little bit. And the yeah. scenes where he's cutting him, like, I feel, I felt the sting of those. Like, I'm like, oh, they look pretty, they look really good. I'm like, that's going to get infected. But what do you know? Gino's kind of a natural at sword fighting. Yeah. What could you expect? Yeah. He turns the tables on him. And, uh, this is when Prospero comes in and he, he has, a, as he often does, he wanders in and he instantly sums up, um, uh, the wisdom of the scene. Yeah. He, he says, it is a true fact that the greatest swordsman in Italy would not fear the second greatest, but would fear the worst, for that one would be unpredictable. Yeah. However, Gino and Ludovico both pledge that they will not fight each other, so Prospero resolves to make them, uh, to sort of punish them or make them face death in some other ingenious way. He's going to have to come up with a plan. Hmm. After this, uh, there's more uh, religious and philosophical back and forth between Prospero and Francesca on 
God and the devil and so forth. Prospero says that his ancestor who lived in this castle was a member. He was for the church. He was a torturer for the inquisition. And, uh, but, and he says, you know, Satan is not a God of hate, but a God of reality, a God of truth. Yes. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a good part. But, but it is a great, that, I mean, both are, are great scenes of, of, uh, of subtle and intelligent seduction to the dark side. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's not just like, hey, don't you want to do evil or do evil or else? It is, let me explain to you the wisdom of this alternate point of view. Let me unsew your eyes so that you may see the world. Right. Uh, so Price says, you know, I don't want to hurt you, my dear. I just want to help save your soul so you can join me in the glories of hell. Uh, he, there's some great writing in this scene. He says, you know, come with me into the velvet dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Hazel Court is getting married to Satan again. <laughs> uh, she says, uh, I inscribe the final mark and offer myself to thee. And she like, uh, she like brands herself on the chest with a, with an upside down cross, a hot iron. Uh, she says, Lord Satan, send me a demon that I might, you know, wet wedge you in him or something. And, uh, says she, she marks herself as one of Satan's hell maidens. And then we get some update on the B plot with hop toad and Alfredo. Remember Alfredo's the nasty mm. creep from earlier. And so they're talking about what kind of costumes they're going to wear to the masquerade. And uh, Hop Toad's point is, you know, it's the 17th century or whenever this is taking place. We have not figured out yet that it's not cool to pretend to be some kind of foreigner as a costume. So basically, everybody, this masquerade is going to be coming as a cultural caricature. But what will all of them have in common? They'll all be human. Alfredo, if you really want to be something cool, you should be a non-human animal. Alfredo says, well, I could come as a demon, and uh, Hop Toad has an even better idea. Why not dress up in a gorilla suit? <laughs> Amazing. This is great. I mean, I love a gorilla suit in any motion picture, so we're going to get a gorilla suit at this, at this point. And I also just love that Alfredo is just such an evil brute. He has just a void of creativity, but he, he kind of realizes that that is the case. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go with whatever Hop Toad says here, because this guy's got ideas. This is an entertainer. Yes. And this revenge B-plot is going to have a great payoff. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, so later, Juliana comes to Francesca's room, uh, and Juliana's like, Hey, a uh, few updates. I'm a hell maiden now. I want Prospero all to myself. So here's a key to the dungeon. You can break uh, Gino and your father out of the dungeon. You all escape. Then I'll be here with Prospero. Everybody wins. Yeah. She says, don't mind if I do. Thank you very much. Well, they try to escape and uh, Gino kills some guards in the process, but it doesn't quite work. In fact, it seems it was all a setup. They, they like come out to the castle walls and then uh, there's a guard there and the guard turns around and it's Vincent price and yep. Vincent price says, Oh, interesting. How in trying to escape, you all had to sin because <laughs> they killed people. Of course it's checkmate. There you go. Who, who's, another, who's bad now? Yeah. Another lesson in darkness. 
So we got to head to the the banquet before the the masquerade, and the the nobles are all at their banquet tables, like the Skeksis at uh, the feast. <laughs> and uh, Vincent Price sets up an interesting game. There's a, a game he's going to play with uh, Ludovico and Gino uh, that has a that has a number of daggers, with one of them poisoned. Rob, Rob, how would you describe this scene? Um, so before he even sets up the game, Prospero is, is taking these daggers and embedding them in the table. And, Mm -hmm. uh, then he explains, all right, I've got what, five daggers here. Mm -hmm. And one of these daggers has a deadly poison on it, uh, that will, uh, take hold of your body in what, five seconds, I think. Five seconds. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Quick acting poison. So, since you two won't fight each other to the death, what you're going to do is you're going to take turns picking a dagger, cutting your skin, and we'll see what happens. One of you is going to cut your skin with the poison dagger and uh, and die. So let's let's see. Let's do it. Start now. And they they do take turns. It's it's a very tense scene. They get all the way to the last dagger, and uh-oh, it's like Russian roulette. It's like if you get to the last chamber and it, it hasn't gone yet, you're in trouble. And they get to the last dagger, and none of them are poisoned yet, and it's Ludovico's turn. So it looks like he's just going to have to commit suicide, but then he pulls the dagger out, and he lunges. He tries to kill yeah. Prospero with it, but he is killed in the process. Yeah, Prospero, I mean, it, Prospero knew. Prospero knew that this was the likely end of the game, though he's still a little offended that they they didn't play it to its uh, its final phase. Oh, and and a quick little note also: uh, when Prospero is setting up the game, he's talking to all the guests, and he says something like, "You know, it's come to my attention that some of you still have faith in the Christian God. Stop that at once." <laughs> so at this point, Ludo is dead. Gino is all that's left, and at this point, Prospero has nothing else for him. He just kicks him yeah. outside the castle. He's like, go out there into the plague-stricken world. Uh, you're, you're, you're done. Right. He's not going to kill him directly. He's going to banish him from the castle. And, of course, the assumption is exiled outside the castle walls. He's going to meet the Red Death. And Francesca begs to go with him, but Prospero tells her, no, you, you're going to stay here. Uh, Juliana Hazelcourt is once again like, well, I'm ready to get married to Satan now. (laughs) Um, Getting married to Satan is a multi-stage procedure, apparently. But before we get to see how that is finalized, we follow Gino outside the castle walls, where he staggers through that fog-soaked forest of dead trees. Wolves are howling in the distance, and he stumbles along until he comes across the figure in red at the foot of the tree turning over tarot cards on his lap and uh uh, and gino says my god and then the red the red figure says who is your god and it's it's very ominous it's a wonderful creepy scene Mm -hmm. and uh gino is saying "I, i have to go back and rescue francesca but i don't know what to do what weapon can i use against prospero and the holy man in red suggests that he could use love now, back at the castle, we get the payoff of some B-plots. Uh, the masquerade mm-hmm. is coming up soon, so we see uh, we see Alfredo getting into the gorilla suit. And I think in this scene, um, uh, Hop Toad is already like whipping him a little bit to, to get into yes. the act. And Juliana is getting married to Satan again, and she has this evil dream sequence where uh, the dancers of hell like mime stabbing at her. And then she wanders around through the differently colored rooms. And she says, I, I have tasted the beauties of terror. Uh, we see like the, the pendulum from the giant 
clock ticking in the foreground and you you think she's married to satan now but she's not quite yet there's one more thing it's that she has to die she gets attacked and killed by a falcon and the party goers discover her bloody body there after the bird has pecked her face off uh and they're all like oh no uh but vincent price comes in and this is that that great moment where he says oh do not mourn her she has just married a friend of mine it's great. It's perfect delivery. Um, now, did, did you watch the theatrical cut or the extended cut of the film? Um, I'm not sure. I, I made a point of watching the extended cut, and it's my understanding that that we, in the extended cut, basically there are a few different bits we get a little bit more of, including this whole weird dream uh, psychedelic sequence with Hazel uh-huh. Court. And, uh, yeah, it's there's nothing in it that's particularly troubling, especially to modern viewers. But it does go on uh, a bit and is like they're doing this, not in the sense that it gets boring, but it's just a lot of like distortions of her screaming face and slow motion uh, content. And it is, it's, it's very trippy. Yeah. But anyway, she's married to Satan now. She's out of the picture. All right, we're in the final stretch now, so I think we'll skip a little more lightly over what happens. So, some more things go on inside the palace. There, there's a great scene of Gino trying to sneak back inside the castle with what is essentially an Ewok <laughs> grappling hook. Yeah. Yeah. Rope attached to a giant, uh, tree branch or something. Yeah. He throws it over the walls. He climbs up. He expects to meet guards, but no, instead he just meets the, the man in red again. And the Holy man in red tells, Gino, there's no need to fight. He says, you know, just wait here on the rampart shortly after one, I will send Francesca to you. And Gino says, well, wait, what about the guards? But the man in red reveals that the guards have all died of the red death. They've got the blood splattered faces. Mm-hmm. And here there is the, uh, the final confrontation, the big party. Well, first we get the re- payoff of the revenge plot on Alfredo where hop toad hog ties Alfredo in a gorilla suit, ties him to a chandelier, hoists him up in the air and then just sets him on fire. Yeah. It's horrifying to watch. Uh, I mean, any, it's it's gotten to the point where just about any burn suit moment in a in a film, old or new, uh, kind of gives me the, uh, uh, the, the the makes me squirm a little bit, you know. Uh, but this one, yeah, this is horrifying. You you almost if you didn't know that uh, Fredo, that Alfredo was such a bad dude, you might think that Hop Toad went a little bit too far in his revenge execution here. But like you said, Prospero's reaction to his friend here getting burned alive is like, oh, quite funny. Guards, clean up this mess and give Hop Toad a reward. Yeah, I mean, Hop Toad knows his audience. He yeah. served long uh, in the um, uh, in the court of Prince Prospero. In fact, he has a whole little monologue earlier in the film about that. He's like, yeah, I yeah. served Prince Prospero for a long time. But in the middle of all this, Prospero and, and Francesca are wandering around. And it seems Francesca's zeal for Christianity has sort of been been destroyed. She's just like sort of resigned herself to, to well, it's I guess I'm going to be for Satan now. Oh, and we should mention that Prospero in in this sequence, in the final sequence of the film, is dressed like Lawrence of Arabia of darkness, like Lawrence yes. of Arabia, but all in black with gold in the and like the headdress. Uh, so it's yes. a great look. He's, he's just he's like all darkness. Yes, and he, but uh oh, he's looking out over all the party guests, and despite his orders, somebody here at the mask is wearing red. Remember, they yeah. were not supposed to do that. 
So not just red we, details or red trim, which I think was maybe allowed, but this guy's in all red and we know yeah. who this surely is. So he's chasing him down. He goes through the rainbow rooms, through the yellow room, the purple room, the white room, into the final black room where they have the confrontation. Rob, describe the scene. It is, it's so perfect. Oh, it is. It is just a perfect confrontation. You know this is going to happen. There's going to be this scene where Prospero finally speaks with the, the man in red, speaks with the red death personified. And um, I mean, it's one of these scenes where I, 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 you just have to, to, to see it to get all of the intricacies of the dialogue because it's just so perfectly executed. It's like this philosophical discussion of, of uh, the nature of death and the universe and uh, the, the nature of Satan and who rules the universe. It's, uh, it's, it's glorious stuff. And again, in this trippy dark room with this red symbol like on the wall that is sometimes a window in the other rooms that I don't know if you what you made of this, but it made me think of like some sort of a bacterium or a or mm. a, a, like a pustule or something transformed into a symbol. Oh well, yeah, it's kind of a hexagon, but with uh, but with bubbles at all of the vertices. Yeah, but this is the scene where like everything that Prospero believes in is being put to the test. Like he has. He stands apart, or he believes he stands apart from everyone else in the world and in his kingdom because he has privileged knowledge and a privileged understanding of the true nature of reality. And now he stands with this one who um, ultimately it's a little vague about, you know, who and what this is. Like, is this Satan? Is this a god? Is this death? It's, it's, uh, it's, is it the persona, merely the personification of one type of death? Uh, but clearly it is a superhuman individual. It is some sort of like universal concept made manifest. And here he is finally able to confront it. And you go through the stages of who he thinks he is, right? Like Price thinks that he's one of the guests. Uh, he's like, oh, are you Dr. So-and-so? And then mm-hmm. the, the figure in red says, the doctor dances in the white room. Uh, you know, next door. So it's not him. And then he gets all excited because he's like, oh, I get it. You're Satan. You're here to congratulate me on being your your best, your most loyal recruiter. But no, he's not Satan either. And he, he keeps it a little, little vague. He's like, well, you know, Satan rules the universe. And I made a prom. We made a pact with each other over this. And, and he's like, he does not rule the universe alone. Uh, so I love how the film plays it loose with exactly what the... Um, what theological system is actually in place in the universe. It's not one of these films like uh, The Devil Rides Out where it's like satanic threat, Christianity comes and saves the day at the end. Like it's, everything is ultimately unclear exactly what sort of superhuman forces are at play in reality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But of course we get the big reveal. It is the Red Death and the Red Death spreads to everyone in the palace, uh, except Francesca. So we see all the dancers, you know, that they're, they are splattered with the red death. And then finally Prospero himself kind of melts into a red, uh, red puddle. Oh yeah. And there's also the brilliant part where he unmasks the red death and yeah. the red death has Prospero's own face, which is the, uh, the earlier in the, in the encounter, he tells him it's like death has no face until, you know, your very own face at the moment of your death and so forth. Mm. It's all, the dialogue is just beautiful. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely perfectly ab- executed here. But there is a happy ending for the good characters. Uh, Francesca 
and uh, and Gino and Hoptoad and Esmeralda. All all the good characters get to escape, uh, and they they meet outside the castle walls with a with a peasant child who was spared earlier when peasants came to the gate looking for help, and and Prospero had them all slaughtered except for the kid. Mm-hmm. But we also get some more uh, perspective on the world at large because it seems like the red death is not the only death. We get a white death, a yellow death, a black death. They're all gathering. Uh, there's a purple death. They're all gathering by the tree where the red death was hanging out at the beginning, all wearing a robe of, of uh, uh, their own color. And it's such a spectacular ending. Yeah. I mean, we get the, the rainbow theme once more. Um, and I, and I guess I felt like some of these were maybe related to the four humors, you know, we have red death, black death, yellow death, I guess the grayish looking one is maybe blue, blue death, Mm. white death. I'm less sure about though. Uh, though, I mean, I can think of some, some fantasy, uh, stories that uh, involve something called the white death. Mm. So uh, one can imagine that these are all just different plagues that are running rampant in the world and they're kind of, their personifications are checking in and saying, Hey, how's it going? What's your, what's your kill? Right today, did you make quota? And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing great." I hear, I hear, uh, uh, Blue Death is a little behind today, but, uh, but man, did you hear about Black? He's really, he's really cranking in the numbers. But it's not like that. It's, it's more of a solemn affair, uh, a vague affair. You don't really know exactly what these entities are, except they, they're clearly involved in, in death, but. It's a it's a solemn kind of death, and in fact, we get the the final words of uh, of the the film are in Latin. What sic transit gloria mundi, uh, which translates to "Thus passes the glory of the world." I think they also quote the ending of the Poe story, don't they? Say that uh, the darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. Yes, yes, they do. And then we also get a we kind of go back to the same style as the opening credits. We get the closing credits, which are also splinted. These are this is definitely a credit sequence to stick with uh, for the duration. Not because there's any kind of cool stinger at the end, just because they're beautiful to watch and they they kind of play out uh, in a way that builds. And then the film closes. We go red, increasingly red, and then darkness. Who knew Roger Corman had it in him? This is just a, a fantastic, stylish horror movie. It is. This is yeah, just peak artful uh, Roger Corman. Uh, great Vincent Price film, and just a, just a great Halloween movie. Uh, so definitely worth checking out. Even if you don't think you're into uh, Vincent Price films, if you're not, you think you're not into films from the early 1960s, early mid 1960s, um, yeah, uh, this is this is one that I think holds up exceedingly well for modern viewers. But hey, we'd love to hear from everyone out there about this film as well. What are your thoughts on Mask of the Red Death? Uh, what are your thoughts on adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories in general? I guess this is the first time we've discussed one on the show, uh, but there are many more out there, and there are some we might come back to. There, uh, I, I can't think of one offhand that's better than this one. I can think of some that are much hammier. Uh, but, uh, but there are definitely some other choices. And of course, there are some other ones by Corman and company as well. Yeah. Uh, as we close out here, we'll remind you that we're primarily a science podcast, but on Fridays we do Weird House Cinema. That is our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. If you'd like to keep up with the films that we are covering, have covered, and will cover on the show, I chronicle them at samutamusic.com. That's a, just a blog that I maintain. But then also, Weird House has its own account on letterboxd.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Our 
username is Weird House. We have a list there that has all of the films that we've watched. Uh, you can see it all in like a nice visual spread of uh, thumbnails and you can organize them by decades or however you want. And there are links there that'll take you to the episodes. Uh, it's a great way to visualize uh, where we are, what decades we've covered. And I believe, uh, as, uh, according to my counting, this was the 90th film that we've covered on Weird House Cinema. Mm. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking and all-day drinks for one low price but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long save now at cedarpoint.com zumo play is your destination for endless entertainment with a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels movies and full tv series you'll easily find something to watch right away and the best part it's all free love music get lost in the 90s with iheart 90s dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iheart radio music channels no logins no signups no accounts no hassle so what are you waiting for start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and google play stores today all you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.